Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Ryan North will join us to discuss how to take over the world. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. show. Well, who wouldn't want to take over the world? But oftentimes what we need is really a good plan. How can science help? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Ryan North. Mr. North is the New York Times bestselling author whose books include How to Invent Everything, Romeo and or Juliet, and To Be or Not to Be. He's the creator of Dinosaur Comics and the Eisner Award-winning writer of Adventure Time, Jughead, and the unbeatable Squirrel Girl, for Marvel Comics. He has a master's in computational linguistics from the University of Toronto. He has penned the new book, How to Take Over the World, Practical Schemes and Scientific Solutions for the Aspiring Supervillain. Mr. North, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Certainly our pleasure. Certainly a great book for all the world's aspiring supervillains out there, uh, How to Take Over the World. Uh, Why did you decide to put the book together? It was something that really interested me, this idea of having a fictional lens to view nonfiction. I'd first done it in How to Invent Everything, where the premise was you rented a time machine, you went back in time, your time machine broke, and this repair guide for your time machine says, we can't fix it. What you can do is rebuild civilization in the past, so here's how you bring the future back to you. And I found that having that that fictional premise really motivated all the nonfiction. It gave it a sparkle. You'd want to learn about it because you want to feel like a more competent time traveler. And so for this book, the idea of let's take these these classic comic book supervillain schemes of like digging to the Earth's core to hold it hostage or ensuring that you're the last thing that survives in the memory of this world. And can we do them in real life? And when we do take away the fantasy science of of shrink rays and mind control helmets and things like that, and we're left with just actual science and technology, it was surprising how (laughs) astonishingly credible a lot of these schemes were. And so the fun for me was using this fictional lens of exploring some really interesting nonfiction. And that was the original idea, the genesis for the book. Well, I think it probably no greater motivation than supervillainy for anything, really. And the book certainly is a compilation of various plans, which uh, do have uh, roots in various comic books. I'm curious how you chose these particular ones. It was a process of thinking of classic supervillain plots and then seeing what would work. There were some, there was one in particular that I didn't include because it was actually too easy, which was a shock. Most of the schemes in the book, they bring you to some really interesting places in in science and human nature. But the scheme that I came up with, which was simply throwing your enemies into the sun, it turns out that is too easy. We've basically already done it with the Parker Solar Probe, which uses flybys of planets to slow it down and get it ever closer towards the sun. Wouldn't take much to modify that trajectory to send something into the sun. The problem is that it's taking it's taking five years to get there. So, you know, revenge is a dish best served cold, but this felt like a little too cold for me, <laughs> taking too long. So the fact that it was 
too easy to throw people into the sun. And the fact that it was actually not as interesting a problem as I thought it was, was very surprising to me (laughs) in researching the book. Well, I mean, you'd imagine that long, any super arch enemy worth its salt would have probably figured a way to get out of that mess. (laughs) (laughs) You give them a lot of time to figure out how to escape. That's true. Again, so many great ones. Were, Were there any favorite particular plots that went into the book? Yeah, my favorite one is actually the last one in the book, where we, after discussing all these different plots, the final one we have is, okay, so you've, you've, you've done all these amazing things. The only thing that can threaten you now is being forgotten. So you need to make sure you can send a message into the future. And we look at that for one year, 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, all the way up to the heat death of the universe. And what surprised me, what I found so interesting was as you start going into deeper and deeper time, the problems you encounter of communication, of language evolving, of how could, how can you establish communication with someone where you don't have any shared assumptions about each other, these questions start becoming fundamental questions of, of human nature and communication in general. And so it starts with this very classic cartoon supervillain, I want to never be forgotten, But by the time we're staring down 10 billion years, we're looking at cosmic questions of humanity and our place in the universe. And if anything can be made to survive of this world, of this solar system and the inevitable end of the universe, it it expands so much, but starts with such a small, petty motivation that we all get. I I enjoyed that that process of of, uh, mind expansion as we go through that those years and years of time. Can anything ever not be forgotten? If we're heading towards the heat death of the universe, will everything be forgotten in the end? In the end, sure. But my conclusion in the book is one of the best things you could do is basically emulate what the Voyager spacecraft did with their golden record. Because if you get the right trajectory and you get lucky and it doesn't get knocked into like a dust-heavy area of space or a planet-heavy area of space, you could be looking at five billion years on the outside of the record and longer for the protected inside of it. And that's that's just a huge, colossal amount of time. And it's crazy. Like I got to John Lumberg, who directed the project, was kind enough to talk to me. And I'm, I'm here on the phone talking to a man who has created art with this Voyager Golden Record that will absolutely outlive all of us <laughs> and likely the planet and likely the sun. And that level of of just deep time is fascinating to me. Um, well, I think along those lines through the end of the book was how can we become immortal, literally live forever? Is this even an option? Yeah. And the, the shocking thing there was you think about immortality as this comic book theme, you're like, okay, yeah, you know, fantasy science. But there are a lot of people doing real work into this problem because I think like most of us, they don't want to die. And it's a very a very human place to begin. And the fun thing with that scheme is that as you look at it seriously and say, well, let's let's imagine they could pull this off. Let's imagine that telomere extension works or that mind uploading can be achieved somehow or mind transferring to clones or whatever, whatever thing you want. All of these are technologies and they require money. They're medical interventions or software and hardware. And if you have a life extension technology that relies on money, then at the societal level, you're creating rich people who won't die <laughs> and poor people who will. And that's like cartoonish villain, uh, cartoonish levels of inequality and bad for society. So the nice twist of enlightened supervillainy is you can become immortal, but it's just you. You keep it a secret. So only you have the positive sides and society doesn't have to pay the downsides of this wild structural inequality. And I like that idea of 
of helping the world by helping only yourself really felt like this is where a supervillain should be operating because they see themselves as the good guys. They want the world to be a better place, but they're just kind of putting themselves first in that process. I am reminded of the Peacemaker series, good motivations, but uh, with maybe bad consequences. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what always strikes me with superheroes and supervillains, that they're, they're both people working outside of existing power structures to get something done that isn't being done on its own. And that's what a supervillain does, but it's also what your Batman and Superman do. Like they're the line between hero and villain there. And I know I sound like a supervillain when I say this, but they're not so different. <laughs> you and I, like we're kind of on the same side here. Again, a lot of these things are, are drawn from supervillainy in comics, but uh, most of those themes, the things that uh, drive the, the characters in those are, are very human emotions. Otherwise, we wouldn't sort of relate to them in any way. Yeah, the best villains, I think, are the ones that uh, see themselves as the heroes and are doing things for good reasons. Like you look at Marvel movies, you have Thanos, who literally kills half the universe, clearly bad. But his motivation is not that he wants to kill half the universe. It's that he wants a sustainable future for his children and for everyone. And I feel like most of us would want a planet that can be sustained. And this feels like we all we agree with Thanos on we, what we want the world to look like. We just disagree on the implementation of it. We don't want to kill half the people. We want to find a way to make it sustainable for everyone. But he goes that step too far and decides to kill half the universe. So there's a lot of overlap in at least the motivations. And it kind of falls apart for villains as they try to implement the schemes. But I feel like we all sort of start on the same page. <laughs> just a little too far there. <laughs> I'm not saying, you know, hashtag Thanos was right. He's clearly wrong, but sustainability is good. One in the book that struck me as sort of maybe the classic supervillain thing was drilling to the center of the earth to hold the earth as core hostage. So is this sort of thing possible? Yeah, that was a fun one. That was the only scheme in the book. We look at here's what you need to dig to the earth's core and here's the challenges you'll face. And the challenges keep mounting up higher and higher and higher. And it reaches the point where I say, look, even the most wild super science can't solve these problems there is no way right now to credibly reach the earth core i'm sorry and then you turn the page and it says what we have a plan b because we're super <laughs> so instead of digging straight down to the earth core to make money we dig a tunnel sideways to connect to stock exchanges and by having a tunnel directly through the earth's crust between these two locations you can send information faster than anyone else on Earth can, which allows you to effectively see into the future at these distant stock exchanges, which lets you do high-speed frequency trading, or high-frequency trading, which lets you make guaranteed income because you have knowledge that nobody else in that city has, which, again, sounds villainous, but the society, we all decided it was fine, <laughs> and this is happening to a lesser extent right now with, with high-frequency trading, high-speed trading with companies like Spread Networks who built shorter tunnels between or shorter routes between uh, stock exchanges to make money. So I like that it started with this fantastic dig to the earth's core, sounds impossible, and in this case actually is, but then segues into something that sounds like it should be, at the very least, illegal, <laughs> but isn't. So now you have a, a source of fluid capital for an investment of $300 million or so. <laughs> so so all those Wall Street traders are real-life supervillains here. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, all Wall Street traders and sound of my voice. The book has a number of these plots, these schemes. Were there any schemes that were commonplace in comic book uh, lexicon that you wanted to include, that you wanted to have some sort of scientific basis, but just wasn't possible? Yeah, there was. I thought if there's some way we could make it. Villains are always trying to make themselves be popular, right? And if there's some way that we can scientifically do that without 
mind control helmets, magic pheromones in the water supply or something. But that problem basically boils down to a problem of human nature, right? Like, how do I get people to like me? And there are thousands of self-help books on that subject. And clearly, none of them really work or we'd all be liking everyone on the planet right now. <laughs> so I wish I could have gotten that one to work, but it's, it is beyond the reach of myself, at least. If you were going to take over the world, what would your plan be? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. Honestly, I don't feel like I'd want to take over the world. <laughs> One of the things you sort of get by reading the book is that there's a lot of really cool science and tech, a lot of cool things to learn, but it's also, it's a lot of work and the treated as the end point, right? Like Dr. Doom, Lex Luthor, when they want to take over the world, they sort of picture that as their ultimate victory of showing everyone how smart they are and how clever they are and how charismatic they are. But what comes after that is kind of a blank slate. And where the book ends up is arguing that, yes, you know, we've done all these super villain plots, but what you've really been doing is seeing how the, as complex as the world is, it can still be understood through science and study. And when you understand something, you can influence it and push it in a better direction. You chip off a bit of the impossible and, and make it possible. And so for me, I'm less interested in taking over the world in that sense and more interested in understanding the world and creating a better world through science and kindness. So it's a journey from supervillainy to actually like being a better person and creating a better world. But I think that's a journey that's worth going on. <laughs> So the supervillains in the comics could come to that realization, in fact, but they never seem to. Yeah. <laughs> well, they are unfortunately laboring under the restriction that they have to be forever entertaining to us. And that means there's a limit on the personal growth they can undergo. Curse, final words regarding your book. Uh, I mean, I'm the author, so I'm biased, but I think it's a lot of fun. And if you're curious, you can find out more at supervillainbook.com, which is a non-suspicious URL to have in your history. So don't worry about it. <laughs> We were just talking with Mr. Ryan North. He has penned the new book, How to Take Over the World, Practical Schemes and Scientific Solutions for the Aspiring Supervillain. Mr. North, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.